welcome to the 11th podcast episode of The Tar Sands Diplomat, read by the author Keith Halliday. If you'd like to learn a bit more about the origins of the book and the author, check out the profile piece on the book in Ottawa's Hill Times, or visit the website at tarsandsdiplomat.com. And now, here's Keith with episode 11 of Canada's one and only, literally, satirical diplomatic thriller. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 12. I get invited to a party. I sat glumly in La Quincaillerie the next morning. Not even Moscow Commerçant on a fully charged iPad and one of Bertrand's cream-laden pen d'affaire could cheer me up. My two interrogations left me deeply depressed. Nothing seemed more natural to Sherlock and his Belgian counterpart than that a young diplomat should get bonked on the head in his apartment by a Russian prostitute wielding an Inuit statue. I knew that had Sherlock been able to use multisyllable words, he would have cited the principle of Occam's razor and asserted that the simplest explanation is the most likely, unless evidence of something else is available. And I would have retorted that he didn't seem very interested in looking for evidence of anything else. As I thought about what he had said the day before, it struck me that what he really wanted was to close the case quickly and get back to the delights of Moosehead and Hockey Night in Canada. Perhaps my fears were exaggerated, I thought to myself as I finished my coffee. Sherlock and the Belgian were professional investigators after all, and I should let them do their work. Their views would probably change as more evidence came in. As I walked to the mission, I wondered what Julian was doing at Duvel's house. It couldn't have been a purely professional invitation. No French deputy perm rep would want it to get around Brussels that he had wasted his time with a mere third secretary, especially a Canadian one. I had no doubt, however, that Julian had made the most of the opportunity, whatever the pretext for his invitation. He probably intended to charm the snobby Parisians at the dinner with his impression of Pierre and Gaston, Quebec's dimmest snowmobile enthusiasts. He had a finely tuned ear for language and scored off the charts on the department's linguistic tests. He had an uncanny ability to tell anecdotes about Pierre and Gaston checking if the gas tank was full with their lighters in the most shocking Quebec joual I've heard outside the federal cabinet. Then he would have sought an opportunity for a quiet talk with Duvel. He could have been fishing for information about what the European Union member state ambassadors were saying about Can-Do Canada. Or maybe he was trying to make some specific points about the various Canadian files that were trapped in the oubliettes underneath the deputy perm rep's office. But why hadn't he mentioned the dinner to me? I recalled Beddo looking for Julian. Was Julian supposed to talk to Duvel about Canadian oil? I was in the mission and almost at my desk when I heard voices in Julian's office down the hall. Poking my head around the corner, I saw Cornelia and Kennedy. Cornelia had a desk lamp under her arm and was stuffing pads of sticky notes into her pocket. She looked as guilty as if I'd caught her with a mini-camera and a pile of top-secret cables. The things a freeze in the office supply budget will make people do, I thought to myself. I made a mental note to give Cornelia all of Fanshawe's sticky notes. Fountain pen ink doesn't dry very well on them anyway. Kennedy, on the other hand, didn't seem to be looting Julian's office. Instead, she was poring over his side table. A variety of French history, wine, and architecture books were open on their spines, and several pages of notes were scattered on the desktop. So that's how he did it, the little creep, I heard her mutter to herself before she realized I was there. Looks like he was studying for that dinner he was having with the French deputy Permarep, I noted. Yes, she replied. Look at this. Here's his host's home village, with all the local wines and history noted. He'd even been memorizing anecdotes and writing them on flashcards. She brandished a small handbook by a French raconteur. Several of the other cards had the sensible bits of various departmental talking points summarized. 
No wonder he was always on point, she said. He always seemed to have exactly the right thing to say whenever someone senior was around. Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity, as Seneca used to say, I replied. It also explains why he had to go to the bathroom so often, she replied sourly, to read his stupid cards. Sherlock didn't care much about the Duvel dinner, I said. He was more interested in a stagiaire party. I noticed that Cornelia's eyes bulged slightly when I said the words stagiaire party. I wonder if that's where he met the girl, said Kennedy pensively. You know, the one that killed him. I have yet to be convinced that's what actually happened, I said. I'm going to tell Sherlock to keep his options open. It could easily have been someone who just wanted it to look that way. What if it was some green extremist with a conspiracy theory burgling his apartment or following him home? Kennedy's head snapped towards me in surprise. McGregor! She snapped. That's ridiculous. You don't have any evidence at all. You'll just end up distracting security division. They need to get to the bottom of it and get out of town before Can Do Canada. Let them do their work. Back in my office, I reviewed the schedule for Can Do Canada. The plan had evolved into a thick binder with many tabs, and it reminded me of that old World War II movie, A Bridge Too Far. Our plan had as many moving parts and intricately staged deadlines as Field Marshal Montgomery's Operation Market Garden. I sighed. If we ran into an unexpected SS Panzer Division on Avenue Louise, the delegation would never get from the mission to the media lunch in time. The first day was supposed to start with the arrival of the industry delegates. In line with Ottawa's plan to use the magic power of the trade minister to solve a bunch of festering trade problems all at once, there were representatives from the Prairie Canola Growers Association, the Asbestos Federation, the Beef Industry, the Forest Industry Alliance, the Canadian Nuclear Power Alliance, and, representing the fur industry, the National Trappers League, and the Associate Grand Chief of the Aboriginal Association of Canada. The day was to start with the obligatory briefing, then some meetings, followed by a media lunch, where carefully selected local journalists and people Cornelia kept calling key opinion leaders would be paired with Canadian representatives so the latter could get their message across without being filtered by hostile media. Cornelia had been to communications training and kept saying, all we have to do is get our message out better. I feared, on the other hand, that the Europeans knew our message clearly, but just didn't buy it. You won't sell much maple syrup at a diabetes conference, no matter how clear your message is. Having eaten lunch and crisply communicated our messages to key opinion leaders, we would proceed to working sessions on various topics at the European Commission. Day two would see the minister arrive, and he would meet with Sir William Friddle at the European Commission. Friddle was the trade supremo in Brussels, and could solve many of our problems. Whether he would or not, a self-congratulatory dinner at the official residence was scheduled that evening. Suddenly, down the hall, I heard Lucille say, if you insist, and slam her receiver down. Then my phone began to ring. I turned down my balk and picked up. Pardon me, do you have a match? Said a woman's voice in English. I knew what to say. I use a lighter. Better still, she replied. It was a familiar-sounding voice with a Canadian accent. Until they go wrong, I said. Exactly. It came to me. Violet Haverstock, I said with delight. Violet had passed through my section as a young recruit before leaving the department after her first posting. When she was in my section, she plowed through my entire collection of spy novels while riding the bus to see her boyfriend in Toronto every weekend. Violet laughed. It's been a long time since our wine war with the Bulgarians. Julian told me you were in town. I recalled that she played hockey on the Oxford women's team when Julian was on the men's team. You're welcome back at the department any time, I said. 
I'm a partner now at Pan-Euro Government Relations. It was a firm I was vaguely aware of, apparently one of the top lobbying firms in Brussels, with a blue-chip client list. Congratulations, I said. How is government relations treating you? Well, I'm only a junior partner. They still give me all the Canadian clients. Like who, I asked. Oh, you know, the airline, generic pharma, telecom, banks, companies with big enough budgets that they can get professional help with their European entanglements. She paused. And not have to rely on the Foreign Service, I asked. Something like that. If you'd stayed with me, I said, you could have owned the entire Eastern European wine file by now. Now that Russian tank crews are drinking all the Crimean wine, you should see the Moldovan and Georgian wine people squabble over who gets to export to Canada. Life is full of choices, she replied with a laugh. You have one now. Sit in your office or join me for a drink at this deal party my firm is hosting tonight. We have to talk about Julian, and I have something to tell you. I agreed immediately. She told me the location, then asked for the PIN code for my BlackBerry. She walked me through where to find it on my phone. Apparently this allowed us to communicate faster and more securely, without leaving a lot of records on email servers or phone company bills. She didn't say why we needed to avoid leaving a lot of email and phone company records. It was assumed. I just pinned you, she said. My phone made a funny plink sound a second later, and the message C-U-L-8-R, see you later, flashed onto the screen in red. Pin me when you get to party, said the next message. I felt like a teenager. I'll try, I said on the phone. If you don't get a message, watch for a man wearing a gray suit with a copy of the Minsk Sentinel under his arm. Perfect. I'll be the woman in the fantastic dress with a glass of Veuve Clicquot, she replied before she hung up. A few hours later, I was strolling through Parc de la Cinquantenaire's tree-lined paths towards Rue de la Loire, the city's lobbying red-light district. It soon became clear that Violet hadn't needed to give me the address. All I had to do was follow the limos towards the searchlights. Pan-Euro occupied a fine old stone building whose courtyard had been encased in glass. Dormen dressed like Versailles footmen opened the doors of limos, disgorging guests onto a red carpet that passed between the searchlights and through the glass wall. Pulsing music and colored lights emanated from inside Violet's den of government relations. My crumpled suit and scuffed shoes attracted the attention of the burly men with radio earpieces, but they decided I was harmless and refrained from tasering me as I slipped into the pleasure dome. A woman dressed like Marie Antoinette in a miniskirt was on a ladder, pouring vodka down a mock bobsled run carved out of a giant block of ice. More Marie Antoinettes captured the chilled fluid in glasses made of small blocks of ice and handed them to passers-by. I contented myself with a glass of fizzy and went in search of Violet. The party seemed to be in honor of one of Panero's clients, who just bought a major fashion magazine. People often seem taller and better looking when you leave the Canadian mission, but on this evening, the effect was extreme. I dodged some models, feasting on orange slices like hyenas on a week-old wildebeest, and then passed some young men with narrow ties and their cheeks sucked in, and kept looking. I finally spotted Violet in a corner. I pulled out my phone and sent her a pin, saying, Hi, Violet. I'm here. She had matured since I'd seen her last. She was dressed like an upwardly mobile professional, but still had her striking Irish looks, dark hair, pale skin, and arresting blue eyes. She was listening intently to an attractive, older woman in a beautiful fur coat. Towering above both of them was a tall, well-dressed blonde man in his mid-thirties. His grey pinstripe suit struggled to contain his shoulders, and I guessed he was ex-rugby, ex-swimming, or ex-special forces. As Violet leaned in to listen to the woman in fur, her arm slipped familiarly onto the man's back for support. Violet checked her phone and expertly tapped something into it with one hand while holding her champagne in the other. 
She looked up, spotted me, and waved her lit phone to beckon me over. She hugged me and turned to the group. Everyone, this is McGregor from the Canadian Mission, the guy I was telling you about. From someone other than Violet, this introduction might have worried me. But everyone smiled and shook hands. The woman was an independent lobbyist who worked for the Greenland Fur Association. You must be the person our trade commissioners say is always outshining them on the fur file, I said with a smile. A pendant of mammoth ivory hung around her neck, and her bag looked like it had been made out of some animal. And I love your northern accessories, I added. A bit of flattery never hurts. Dunscap had told me that the industry association back in Canada had started phoning Greenland's representative instead of the mission to find out what was going on in Brussels. Violet put her hand on the man's arm. And this is my special friend, Paul. Smokes and drinks. Don't we all? I replied, a bit puzzled as I shook Paul's hand. No, said Violet. His clients are in the alcohol and tobacco industries. Paul also has a sideline in genetically modified food and hormone-treated beef. That's why I invited you. With Can Do Canada coming up, I thought you should meet the other pariahs in town. We had an illuminating conversation. It's a bad idea to organize a high-profile visit like Can Do Canada, said the fur woman with disarming directness. Violet's boyfriend agreed. It draws too much attention. The commission negotiators will be worried they'll look bad if they make any concessions, and, he paused for effect, so many issues are on the table it will draw protesters like the UN General Assembly attracts call girls. In the end, we all agreed that Can Do Canada was likely to be a regrettable episode. They gave me their cards, offered to help if they could, and made me promise to do whatever possible to limit the collateral damage to their clients. Violet gave some kind of imperceptible signal to Paul, and he led the fur woman away to look for canapes with real meat. That left Violet and me alone, so we could talk about whatever it was that she had really invited me for. You have him well trained, I said to Violet. He's very sweet, she replied. She grabbed me another glass of fizzy off a passing tray and steered me towards a large group of beautiful women and expensively suited men. This is good, she said. Our client's bankers will be too busy trying to pick up the models to listen in. I expected her to lean closer conspiratorially and whisper something to me, but instead she kept a normal distance and posture. She was a pro. Any observer would think we were talking about the weather. McGregor, she said, I don't buy the call girl murder angle for a second, at least judging by how many of my friends at university ended up with broken hearts because of Julian. But we can talk about that later. I wanted to warn you about... But Violet was interrupted as another waitress arrived with a tray of orange slices, which the models leapt upon like Ottawa mosquitoes on a freshly arrived German diplomat. Even the bankers recoiled in alarm. Violet continued, McGregor, I wanted to tell you that Ian Culloden has selected Can Do Canada as target of the year. Is this the Ian Culloden who called down the airstrike on the Afghan village wedding but is now some sanctimonious greenie, I asked? Exactly, she said. And what do you mean by target of the year? There's no point in masquerading that you know something with Violet. It means he's decided that Can Do Canada is the perfect vehicle to drive fundraising and membership. Just think of the protests, the publicity, donations flooding in from German housewives outraged by the tar sands and Frankenstein canola. We always expected a few protests, I said, but Violet gave me a look that I recognized from when she worked for me. It meant I was living in a fantasy world. Okay, I said, tell me what I don't know. The Green Alliance is going to make you their flagship campaign. They are mobilizing the rent-a-crowd. They are coding a website in every European language. They are renting a giant dump truck, just like in the tar sands, to dump black goo in front of the mission. Oh God, I moaned. I reached out and grabbed another glass of champagne from a passing Marie Antoinette, 
How do you know this? My stagiaire is roommates with a girl whose boyfriend is interning for the Greens. Wow, I said. You run an agent network of stagiaires? You bet, she replied. You'd be amazed at what the stagiaires know in Brussels. I must have looked skeptical, and she went on. Okay, how many times has your ambassador grabbed your Icelandic Canadian stagiaire's ass? I shrugged. She looked at me. The answer is, a lot. Point taken, I replied. He should be careful. She says she's a power hitter for the UBC Thunderbirds. She could probably kill him with a single blow. You need to be careful about Ian Culloden, said Violet. He'll stop at nothing to make you look bad. His organization lives and dies by publicity campaigns. Last year's Angolan sea turtle campaign was a total flop. Turns out sea turtles are not charismatic enough. The Green Alliance is in debt and needs a win. Isn't Canada too boring to be a good target? I asked. I might have said that a year or two ago, but I think the tar sands really make us a contender to be a global villain. Climate change is flavor of the month, and the images from Fort McMurray are eye-catching. Just think about those giant dump trucks dripping with bitumen, the huge black open pits, the enormous refineries spewing smoke, or those cute birds who land in the oil ponds and flounder around on camera before they die. How did he make the jump from special forces to being a green activist, I asked. Apparently he was a rising star in the special air service. If you needed to raid some Afghan compound in the middle of the night, you sent him. He set some kind of record for prisoner capture. Hercules after Hercules was flying to Kabul with guys Ian had captured in the back with bags on their heads and pull ties on their wrists. Who knows how many were Taliban and how many were just farmers in the wrong place at the wrong time. And they say he did some really dangerous stuff too like black missions into Iran and Tajikistan, chasing bad guys. And now he's in Brussels? Yep. Now he's a vegetarian yoga enthusiast who's inspired thousands of people to join the Green Alliance. They say he finished a tour and told the army he wouldn't do it again. Then he reinvented himself, wrote a truly unreadable book, and got famous. He sounds nuts, I said. Maybe, she replied. But don't underestimate him. He's actually very charming. You'd enjoy having dinner with him. I'd invite him to these parties if I didn't think he'd chain himself to one of my clients. Thanks, Violet, I said. To make it all even worse, we have Beto and Ravinsky here from the Prime Minister's office, breathing down our necks. Yes, she replied. I invited Gruinski slash Ravinsky tonight, too. We were in student politics back in the day. Ambassador Glossroom, too, I asked. She stifled a laugh, and the champagne bubbles nearly came out her nose. <laughs> Sorry, no. The senior partners told me never to invite him. I told them Pravinsky was from the Prime Minister's office back in Ottawa. A client waved, and Violet excused herself. She moved briskly into the crowd to make friends and influence people. Disturbed by the bad news, I gave my champagne glass to one of the roving Marie Antoinettes and moved to the iceberg and got what looked like a double vodka. I took a sip and stepped back to get out of the crowd and found myself standing beside a tall man with thinning hair and a sunburnt face. Hi there, he said cheerfully. Quite a party, eh? Don't you love the Marie Antoinette concept? I recognized the Canadian accent immediately. I nodded, but didn't say anything. He was wearing a conventional blue suit and white shirt, but his suit looked too expensive to be owned by a government official. I couldn't quite place him. Len Sleeth, said the man, giving my hand a firm shake. Westcan, Western Canadian Energy. I'm over from Calgary. Now it made sense. I smiled and introduced myself. When I said, Canadian mission to the European Union, Sleeth's eyes bulged. Well... It sure was nice to meet you. Enjoy the party, he said, clinking my glass quickly before disappearing into the crowd. Introducing myself as a foreign service officer has provoked a variety of reactions over the years. But Sleeth had taken off like I'd told him I was contagious with the latest global flu scare on CNN.
Before I could think any more about it, however, Craig Ravinsky from the Prime Minister's office suddenly materialized from behind a nearby ice sculpture. He raised a single eyebrow at me. E pluribus unum, he said. Pardon me, I asked. It's the only Latin I know. Aren't you a foreign service officer from the mission? Yes, I replied. He waved his glass at the party. Makes Ottawa look like a hick town, he said. I nodded. He surveyed the crowd like he was looking for someone. Probably Sleeth, I guessed. I was curious about his presence and decided some small talk was in order. Violet told me you'd be here. How are you enjoying the party? You know her? He said, a tone of mild surprise in his voice. I related her brush with my section and spy novel collection. Have they found out who murdered the dead guy? He asked. No, security division is investigating. Yeah, Kennedy told me it was probably a hooker. Bad luck, just before Can Do Canada. I had the impression that by bad luck, he meant bad luck for him and his ministerial visit, not Julian. His eyes scanned the crowd as he spoke. Violet's firm has impressive pulling power, I said, pointing out the head of the European Commission's Directorate General for Agriculture with a discreet wave of my vodka glass. I also pointed out Duvel, number two at the French mission, who was talking to the Director General for Energy and the top lobbyist for the big French oil company. Really? How do you know all this? It's my job. I explained that these were all people who had to make decisions to solve our Can Do Canada problems. He stared at me blankly, so I explained how getting anything done in Brussels required negotiating with the officials, getting the Directors General to agree, and then convincing the local representatives of the member states, and sometimes the European Parliament as well. Ravinsky seemed fascinated by the European Union, and barraged me with questions about the Council of Ministers, European Parliament, and how deals get done in Brussels. Wow, he said finally. So what's the equivalent of the Prime Minister's office, you know, where everything gets decided in the end? Well, that's the thing, I replied. There isn't one. Power is very diffuse here. You have to get the right alliance of member states in the Council of Ministers, bureaucrats in the Commission, and random politicians in the European Parliament. Pravinsky was amazed. How do they get anything done without a PMO to control everything? Good question, I replied. People from the Kremlin always ask that. My mention of Russia prompted a new series of questions about Russian gas. I told him that about a quarter of Europe's gas came from Russia, thanks to the Trans-Siberian pipeline built in the 1980s. I didn't think you'd know anything about oil and gas, said Ravinsky, still acting surprised that a foreign service officer could know anything useful. You must be good at trivial pursuit. Some people say the foreign service exam is just a weird kind of trivia test, I replied. We went on talking about the Trans-Siberian pipeline. I told him about the controversy during the Cold War, when the Reagan administration thought the Russians would use their control of Europe's energy supply as leverage on the Europeans. And now the Russians are using it to get leverage on Ukraine, said Ravinsky, a touch of bitterness in his voice. We talked about Ukraine's near-total dependence on cheap gas from Russia, and he ranted, at length, about Russian interference in Ukraine and the Kremlin's nefarious construction of a pipeline under the Baltic Sea direct to Germany to bypass the country. This eliminated Ukraine's biggest bargaining chip with the Russians, since they would no longer be able to threaten to cut off Russia's access to the European market. He struck me as the kind of person who reads one-sided news websites, He knew a lot of details about Ukraine and its gas problems, but totally lacked any kind of broader perspective on the region. He grabbed another drink off a passing tray. My grandfather fought with the Ukrainian resistance in World War II, barely escaped with his life when the communists closed in after the war. He went on a lengthy tangent about Soviet atrocities, the West betraying the Ukrainians at Yalta, and the French resistance getting all the glory. Was your grandfather in the Bandera movement, I asked, feigning a polite interest. Kravinsky nodded and grunted. For a while, yeah, before throwing his head back and taking a slurp of his drink. 
I decided not to ask if Grandpa used to tell the kids about torching Polish villages or being a Nazi camp guard. There were no easy choices for anyone trapped between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union in the 1940s. At least they finally put up a statue to Bandera in Lviv, said Ravinsky, even gave him a posthumous medal. I decided not to mention that the European Parliament had condemned the award. Ravinsky's enthusiasm made me worry he might mention something about it when Can Do Canada visited the Parliament's Canada Committee. Instead, I reminded him that the Russians were using Bandera and the controversy around him to label the Ukrainian nationalists as fascists. Those Russian bastards, he summed up, always screwing Ukraine. They're not doing it just to screw Ukraine, I pointed out. The Kremlin has ramped up spending to stay popular, and the budget only balances if the price of oil stays above $100. Oil prices are pretty soft right now. Russian politics is based on people putting up with the regime as long as the economy does well. Without more and more oil and gas money, the regime is in very big trouble domestically. Ravinsky waved his vodka at me belligerently. Or, if oil prices stay low, the Russians have to figure out new ways to ship more oil and gas to Europe. Makes me sick how the Europeans are sucking up to the Russians. The sanctions are a joke. He went on another rant, this time about how various German and Swedish politicians ended up on the Russian pipeline's payroll after they retired. That's not even half of it, I pointed out. I told him how one of the pipeline's top executives served in the Stasi and had strong connections to the Kremlin. He shook his head in disgust. He admitted grudging admiration for the Russians when I told him the story of how the pipeline gave a major donation to the German university whose professor was researching the pipeline's impact on fish habitat. But why are the Europeans so lame, he asked. Why don't they stand up to the Russians? They've done next to nothing for Ukraine. Why would they, I asked. They're looking after their interests, and cheap gas and access to a big market is more important than gestures over Ukraine. You guys are always talking about the national interest. What about principles? Vodka slopped out of his glass as he underlined his point. Why would Canada stick its neck out for Ukraine? I asked. We have minimal trade, minimal investment. They're not in NATO. Ravinsky looked at me like I was crazy. Don't you realize how many Ukrainian-Canadian voters there are? People with one Russian and one Ukrainian grandparent self-identify as Ukrainian. There is no Russian-Canadian voting demographic. Just like 0% of Star Wars fans say that Darth Vader's their favorite character. I guess I appeared unconvinced. Kravinsky leaned closer to me. Standing up to the Russians is awesome politics. The Ukrainian vote is in some key ridings. Plus it makes us look strong on defense, which is also great. And now we can say that Canada needs to export more oil to Europe to lessen their dependence on Russian energy and help Ukraine. God. I love this job. That concludes episode 11 of The Tarzan's Diplomat. If you have any comments or questions, please visit keithhalliday.com or send me an email at khalliday at tarzansdiplomat.com. Check iTunes next week for episode 12, when the inevitable can be postponed no longer and McGregor has to actually deal with the can-do delegates in person in Brussels.